Welcome to Enlightenment Rocks. We're your hosts, Kate Rudy and Stephanie O'Rourke. In this podcast, we explore the past, present, and future of Scotland's landscape, and especially the famous rock formations at Glen Tilt in central Scotland. Through interviews with artists, historians, and scientists, we chart a path through the unique topography of Scotland from the 18th century to the present day and into our climate's future. It can be easy to take for granted, I think, that the Scottish landscape is a scenic attraction, that it's you know, a destination people would travel to specifically because of its natural beauty. For most of its history, Scotland has been very difficult for outsiders to access. And it wasn't really until the middle of the 18th century that it acquired this reputation in England and Western Europe as a scenic destination. So I've asked the art historian Dr. John Bonehill from the University of Glasgow to speak with us about how and why our understanding of the Scottish landscape changed around this period, and what unexpected role artists may have played in that change. My name's John Bonehill. I'm a lecturer in the history of art at uh, the University of Glasgow. I work on 18th century British art and culture. Uh, In the past, this has taken in work, for instance, of William Hodges, who was the artist on board Captain Cook's second voyage to the Pacific. I've also more recently begun looking at images of the domestic British landscape, first of all through the work of um, Paul Samby, and then I've been writing a book on estate portraiture, so images of landed property over the course of the long 18th century. So I suppose my principal interest over the last few years has been in the field of topography. So John, how was the Scottish landscape represented in the 18th century? Remarkably few kind of pictorial treatments of the Scottish landscape prior to the second half of the 18th century, especially in oil painting and especially of the highlands. Um, And there are various reasons for that. But one reason, for instance, we might look to is there's a sense in which the Scottish highlands were seen as gloomy and forbidding Um, Famously, for instance, Edmund Burt in his Letters from the North of Britain, a notably controversial book, first published in 1754, Burt writes that he wants to present a landscape of the mountains, but he can't because no such painting exists. And that's partly because the landscape doesn't lend itself to being made into a picture. It's too dark, it's too gloomy, there's no way through it. It's full of strange juxtapositions of near and far, for instance. It can't be made into a picture. Why is that? And what changed to make it possible to paint the Scottish landscape? One of the reasons it can't be made into a picture for him is that there's no roads through that landscape. It seems like the making of a road is fundamental to turning it into something which you can then make into a picture. So it's only with the building of the new roads, the new military roads, that are underway, as uh, Bert was writing, under the direction of General Wade, that it becomes possible, seemingly, 
to produce a pictorial image of Scotland. Now, the building of the new roads under General Wade, which is then continued under his successor, William Caulfield, is done ostensibly to aid and facilitate the movement of troops through the Scottish landscape in the suppression of the Jacobite cause. This is something which is given uh, renewed vigour, as it were, after Culloden. As part of the suppression of Jacobite forces um, after the Battle of 1746, you see large road building and fort building and barrack building campaign, which is also accompanied by a new mapping project. The first ordnance survey takes place after Culloden under the direction of the lowland Scott William Roy. And it's that which also leads to some of the very first and earliest depictions of the Scottish landscape by draftsmen attached to the military. So in other words, the development of uh, landscape imagery of Scotland goes hand in hand with the improvement that you kind of signal with the development of new roads, new fortifications for the purposes of the suppression of the Jacobite forces. And also with that, the development not only of militarism, but commerce and trade which is also seen or understood to aid the suppression of um, the, the rebellious clans at the, the time. If I'm understanding you correctly, then, you're saying that the building of roads and fortifications and the creation of a new comprehensive map of Scotland were practical preconditions for English artists to have access to the Scottish landscape and begin making illustrations of it. I know you're especially interested in the military survey of North Britain, um, directed by William Roy, and also under the direction of a man named Colonel David Watson. What would be the strategic value of mapping Scotland at this moment? Maps have a long history, I suppose, in military command. Um, you know, they're a way of knowing a landscape and directing movements of troops of organising strategy. Um, but in the early part of the 18th century, there's a kind of recognition, as it were, that graphic forms, not only maps, but also, interestingly, views of the landscape, drawings of the landscape, can have a kind of strategic role in the organisation of troops and movement of troops. So who made this military survey of Scotland? Did any artists work on it? The military survey was undertaken by the Board of Ordnance, which was, which is rather, the kind of part of the military responsible for infrastructure, for supplies of arms and armories, and also map making. So the Board of Ordnance in the 18th century was attached to the military, but also had strong links with civilian culture. So leading architects, for instance, of the early 18th century, like William Adam and Robert Adam, indeed James Adam as well, were all had posts with the Board of Ordnance, as did a number of draftsmen, such as Paul Samby, who I've mentioned, and his elder brother, Thomas Samby. In other words, the relationship between the civilian and the military worlds were quite fluid. 
in the period. So the maps themselves, the military survey, the actual survey work in the field was done during the summer months, probably by Roy himself, with small teams of accompanying redcoats and locals often advising, I think, on the landscape itself, directing them through the landscape. And then in the winter months, their findings would be drawn up by the draftsman in the Board of Ordnance, which was based in Edinburgh, in Edinburgh Castle. So Paul Samby, um, who was only 17 years old at the time, was responsible for the highly decorative kinds of relief work that you can see on the military map, where the fine detail and the lettering that you can also see was probably done by Roy himself and other uh, members of the um, Board of Ordnance Drawing Room. So to go back to your original question, the work is really the product of engineers and artists working essentially for military purposes. Does that mean the work of the artists on this project was exclusively for military use? Paul Samby, for instance, the artist who was responsible for the relief work on the map, does clearly have an eye to a subsequent um, professional career as an artist. And many of the drawings that he makes, for instance, whilst off-duty of local scenes, Edinburgh scenes and Highland scenes, subsequently appear on the print market and enjoy a kind of wider audience. Drawings that he makes as a young man in and around 1750, ten years later, turn up um, being exhibited in London at London's very first public art exhibitions. So the relationship between these military and the civilian worlds, between the military and artistic worlds, is a very fluid one that we might now think of as rather distinct. Do you think the British landscape tradition was impacted by the work these figures did on the military survey? First of all, it's interesting to note that um, William Gilpin's father, uh, who was himself a notable artist, was in Scotland at the time of Wade's military road building and participated in that. So when William Gilpin travels through Scotland, he is literally going in his father's footsteps. You could, in a sense, you know, suggest that some of the roots of the aesthetics of the picturesque lie in military draftsmanship. The other interesting phenomenon that some art historians have made, notably uh, Michael Charlesworth, he's seen a connection between the kinds of wide angled panoramic sketching that artists were trained in in the Board of Ordnance in the early part of the century is subsequently becomes a kind of model for that large-scale panoramics of the late 18th, early 19th century as developed by Robert Barker in that it's a, you know, a similar kind of way of looking, a way of seeing the world through this kind of comprehensive bird's-eye perspective out on, on the landscape. So you seem to be suggesting that the famous artistic theory of the picturesque actually grows out of this strategic military project. Well, I, you know, I described that relationship earlier between the military and civilian culture in the 18th century as a quite fluid one, and it is one which kind of passes both ways, I think. Why would 
a military academy need to appoint a drawing master. <laughs> you know, a member who that very that year had also become a foundation member of the Royal Academy. Why does William Hodges, when he's on Cook's Eglickenbridge, also teach and instruct members of the officers on board the ship? I think there's, you know, there's a way in which, for instance, learning to draw is obviously a form of polite accomplishment for them, right? So in enhances their claims to gentility, to being gentlemen, which is important for men in, in the military and important for men in the Navy too. But there's also a recognition in acquiring that skill, for instance. One of the things that it appeals to their bosses, as it were, it's like a guarantee of your ability, not just your gentility, but also your ability and learning. So there's a guide that's produced which, which tells you why um, rules and regulations of the Woolwich Military Academy and they set out why you're learning to draw and what the drawing master will do. And the thing that they say is they will teach you a knowledge of the ground. So it's not so much the actual drawing that produced, but the act of drawing, which is the uh, form of knowledge that's been acquired. Do you see the military survey as, in a sense, a tool of imperialism? You know, that is by making the Scottish landscape legible to English viewers, the maps and landscape pictures facilitate the notion that Scotland can be controlled? That is ultimately what it's about. It's to demonstrate the skills necessary to um, subsequently um, control those landscapes. So it's interesting in that context that um, Paul Samby, who, um, of course, learns his trade, as it were, on the military survey of Scotland, subsequently in 1768 becomes chief drawing master at Royal, at Royal Military Academy in Woolwich. And many of his pupils, who you can go on to trace, go out to North America, go out to Australia, go out to India in particular, and translate many of those techniques which he had kind of honed <laughs> in the Scottish Highlands, to these very different alien landscapes. And then subsequently send him those images back for him to rework up as prints. So in, you know, in 1768, the year he takes up that job, a lot of his former pupils who had been working with him before that um, send back images of North America for this huge series of prints called the Cinegraphia America. Can you talk us through how the Scottish landscape was understood less and less as a war zone or a theatre of war and increasingly viewed as a tourist destination? I think that's one of the most remarkable stories you can tell about the 18th century Scottish landscape is how in really a matter of just 20 years or so, Scotland is transformed from, as you say, a theatre of war into a place of scenic tourism. And I think that central to that process is the building of Wade's military roads. In other words, the infrastructure, not only of roads, but of inns and um, means of transport, which enables movement around the country, greater degrees of circulation. Those military men, 
that are traveling and remain located in Scotland, you know, throughout the 1750s and into the 1760s even, patrolling, maintaining um, awareness about possible risings again in the future, you soon see men of commerce and men of trade and men of kind of philosophical interests soon following in their wake. So you have naturalists, for instance, particularly interested in going on tours, investigating the flora and fauna of Scotland. You have antiquaries investigating Scotland's kind of ancient past, its Roman history, as well as its baronial past, as it were. Eventually, even by the late 1750s, the emergence of a kind of scenic tourism, which is greatly encouraged, for instance, I think, by uh, local landowners in Scotland who help build the road system and invest in it, and also style their landed estates as places of scenic interest that can be seen out. So by 1759, for instance, the Earl of Breadalburn is complaining of the number of tourists that are reaching him at Taymouth you know, that he's inundated with polite visitors making their way. The same year, the Duke of Atoll at Dunkeld is having to charge an entrance fee into the Hermitage Gardens there in order to deter the lower classes of people that are finding their way there. So it's a remarkable kind of turnaround, but clearly linked in a way, that Scotland goes from being, you know, a place of war to a place of tourism. And, you know, the two are go hand in hand. So when the great popularizer of the picturesque tour, William Gilpin, travels Scotland in the 1770s, he actively seeks out places with a military interest, scenes of war. He writes, for instance, of being um, on the battlements of Stirling Castle and being able to see at least half a dozen places of skirmishes and battles of the past out from that landscape. It is one vast theatre of war and memory for him. The other great writer and popularizer, as it were, of the Scottish tour, Thomas Pennant, reconstructs his tour around Scotland around notable sites of battle. So the two processes are the military conquest, as it were, of Scotland and the touristic conquest of Scotland are linked both materially and uh, imaginatively, I think. There's a, there's a wonderful, wonderful drawing that Samby makes in, um, in the late 1740s of Ben Lomond. It's an extraordinary drawing. It's about a metre across and it's long, thin. It's probably made on a camera obscura, right? And it's made of sections because you can see the way in which it's stitched together. It's an extraordinary kind of technical feat, right? A really beautiful thing, which is now in the National Library of Wales because it was collected by Thomas Pennant. He put it in his own extra-illustrated copy of his own tour of Scotland. Anyway, <laughs> that drawing which is a said a meter across subsequently gets engraved for the virtuosos museum 
right, where, of course, the lie of the land is hugely compressed. And the heights of things like Ben Lomond are actually greatly exaggerated to emphasise, as it were, the highlandness of it all. And in the view of the original drawing, you have, interestingly, a military camp because it's a drawing of the military occupation after Culloden. That's obviously been swept away in the engraving of the 1770s, but replaced by a Highland local in plaid and uh, kilt and a British soldier. So the engravings kind of accentuate the Highlandness of it as well. But they, I think they also kind of accentuate the sense of this is a union. How do you think this drawing would have been made in the first place? What I think is they have some kind of camera obscura which takes certain sheets of paper of a certain size and then you're kind of moving the angle of the camera around and switching to another piece of paper and then you're stitching it together actually much the same way that they're doing the maps. So there's an interesting connection between the physical processes of making a drawing like that and the way in which they're actually also producing the maps. John, you're part of the curatorial team behind the online exhibition Old Ways, New Roads, um, which we've included a link to in the show notes. Is there any one particular artwork from the online exhibition that really speaks to or exemplifies this larger history for you? It's not necessarily uh, um, the most visually striking painting, for instance. It's not a well-known painting at all. Um, it's, uh, a, it's a work by William Tompkins, who's a very, very obscure artist now, perhaps not known outside of uh, very specialist circles. But William Tompkins was an artist who travelled, uh, was an English-born artist who travelled extensively in the northeast of Scotland in 1765 and he was uh, commissioned to visit the area by Sir James Grant to paint on his estates and while he was there Tompkins managed to win a number of commissions from other local landowners notably for instance the then Earl of Fife. In the exhibition we have a very large painting broad angled view of Balvini Castle that Tompkins painted in 1767. And one of the things that most fascinated me about that painting is that that work we can also trace to being exhibited in London in a public exhibition at the Society of Artists in 1767. So it was one of the very first large oil paintings shown of the Scottish landscape in London. Predates, for instance, the publication of Thomas Pennant's Tour of Scotland in 1769 and lots of the other kinds of images and writings about Scotland that emerge in subsequent decades. So it's one of the very earliest visions of Scotland and it's an image very much of Scotland improved. It's a view of the Earl of Fife's improvements at his ancestral estate of Balvenie. It shows one side of the landscape, a view of the new house 
that Fife had constructed there, and on the opposite side, the old ruined castle. So it's a conjunction of the old and the new. In the foreground, it shows a kind of rich landscape of newly planted forestry and woodland and newly cultivated fields, a redirected river. So it's a heavily improved landscape. So the painting, when it was shown in London, I think was meant to showcase the improvements that the Earl of Fife was making in the far northeast of Scotland and to present the Scottish Highlands, I think, as a kind of place of cultivation, a place of refinement. I think for that reason, it stands out as a picture which summarises many of the key themes running throughout Old Ways and New Roads particularly the way in which, with the laying out of Wade's roads and then Coalfield's roads, opening Scotland up to new forms of travel and tourism, sees a dramatic transformation of the Scottish landscape in the name of improvement. Tomkins' painting, ultimately, is a painting of a very particular place and a very particular moment. It's about the development of that landscape in and around the middle of the 1760s. But it's also a painting which is very consciously about Scotland more generally, about developments taking place elsewhere. It's a painting which is also full of references to wider circulation. It's full of roads. It's full of, it's got a river running right through the centre of it. So it's a painting about the connections of this place to elsewhere. And I think that therefore it's a picture about the wider sense of circulation and improvement that is taking place in 18th century Scotland. You've spoken of some unusually large artworks, including the one metre wide drawing by Sandby. Do you think working on such a large scale was part of how people in England understood and related to the Scottish landscape, that it was very grand or even sublime? One of the very earliest oil paintings of the Scottish Highlands is a painting from the 1730s of Taymouth, which is by James Norrie, one of the Norrie brothers of Edinburgh. And although it's also been credited as well to a guy called Jan Griffier, and the painting was originally commissioned in the mid-1730s by Lord Breadalburn, to illustrate new changes made to the landscape by William Adam, the new designed landscape at Tamworth. And then they changed that landscape sort of five years later, so they got in another painter to simply overpaint it, which tells you a lot about how much they value these pictures. Um, But that is a broad, wide-angled view. You know, it's significant that the designed landscape of Tamworth is located in this very broad topography, which stretches all the length of um, Loch Tay. That's a landscape of particular significance to the Breadalbin line. And it takes you all the way out to Killen, which is a site of tremendous familial significance to their control of that landscape. So in other words, right from the 1730s, yes, I hadn't really thought about this before, but 
yes, the broad angled views seem very significant. And then right at the end of the period covered by the exhibition, the obvious example would be to think of is the panoramas of John Knox, the Glasgow-born painter, producing these very broad angled paintings to be seen, presumably, actually in 360 degree circumstances. One of the extraordinary pieces included in the online exhibition is an illustration of Glenn Tilt by John Clark of Eldon in 1785. What's so interesting about this illustration? Well, that's just one of a whole um, sketchbook full of remarkable drawings that uh, Clark of Eldon did in order for the illustration of James Hutton's theories of the earth. As I'm sure many of your listeners will know, <laughs> James Hutton kind of revolutionised the understanding, interpretation, and also I think the representation of the Scottish landscape, principally by arguing that rocks and landforms were continually being eroded by weathering agents carried by streams and rivers, which were then consolidated and transformed by subterraneous heat. This was a revolutionary theory which greatly transformed radically the conception of the age of the earth. The drawing that you're referring to of Glen Tilt was made around harvest time in 1785 when Clark accompanied Hutton to the valley of Glen Tilt, just to the north of the Blair Athol estate of the fourth Duke of Athol, where Hutton and Clark stayed as guests in a hunting lodge on the Glen Tilt estate. And they spent their time exploring the uh, valley in the immediate vicinity of the hunting lodge, following the Duke on a deer hunting party. Now, at the time of their visit, Hutton had recently just presented his new theory of geological change to the Royal Society of Edinburgh, uh, where he had explained away the appearance of marine fossils on mountaintops uh, as due to a kind of perpetual cycle of uplift and erosion, which he suggested had shaped the formation of Scotland. I'm glad you've brought up James Hutton because he's such an important figure in the history of Scottish landscape and history of geology. Uh, we've heard about him mostly in relation to earth sciences in the first episode, but are there other ways we can understand the implications of Hutton's work? I think the other interesting thing for me about Hutton's theory of eternal cycles is that it's also a kind of what uh, Frederick Albertson, the um, American scholar, has called a kind of political wager, that it questions the degree to which humans could master and manage the cycles of the geological world and asks what sort of political regime is best suited to control the economy of nature. One of the things that strikes me about Clark of Eldon's drawings that he does for Hutton to illustrate his theories are that they kind of hint at this kind of anthropocentric vision of geology. It's worth remembering, I think, that Clark himself was a gentleman farmer as well as draftsman and a founding member of the Highland Society of Edinburgh, 
which was dedicated to the ideals of and ideas of highland improvement. So he looks at the landscape himself as a gentleman farmer, as an improver, as does, I think, Hutton. You've spoken earlier about how artists were involved in the military survey. Were Clark of Eldon's drawings for Hutton artistic in some ways, or were they purely technical? Maybe the way to begin that is to think about why did someone like Hutton want Clark of Eldon along with him to make these drawings. There's obviously a belief in the current in the late 18th century across a variety of fields, uh, including natural history, but also antiquarianism, that visual images might communicate in a way that was not reducible to words. So um, I mentioned at the earlier, for instance, when you asked me to introduce myself, that I'd worked a long time ago now, on William Hodges, who accompanied Cook on Cook's second voyage. And one of the things that Cook's voyages had done, for instance, was establish this idea that artists had a kind of almost philosophical role to play, not only in the delineation and recording of knowledge, but also in its kind of evaluation. So I kind of have come to understand images such as the ones that Clark of Elton produces as not merely transcripts, as it were, or records of the world, but also to be part of the kind of evaluation going on. There is, of course, also a growing recognition that the illustration of your travel account, of your um, natural history will also be commercially more viable, made more commercially viable by uh, the inclusion of these images. In other words, there's a complex mix of things going on in these pictures, perhaps. There's a mix of um, philosophical exploration going on alongside kind of questions and issues of aesthetics. Clark of Eldon's drawings do greatly simplify the strata, for instance, that, um, that are being examined, they're composite images. They will conflate different parts of the landscape and pull them together in, in, in the interests, I think, of providing further and additional information. But they will also greatly simplify the outlines. They'll um, reduce the number of strata as well. So they are themselves quite complex um, synoptic images, I think, rather than in any way straightforward transcriptions. Thank you so much, John, for sharing your expertise. Um, and if listeners would like to peruse your wonderful online exhibition, Old Ways, New Roads, uh, we've included a link to it in the show notes. If you'd like to explore these ideas further, I would warmly encourage you to listen to our next interview with historian of science, Dr. Alison Siskavich, because she discusses how some of these artistic legacies end up being reabsorbed back into technical scientific understandings of the Scottish landscape. This podcast was made possible by the Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund at the University of St. Andrews. The hosts are Kate Rudy and Stephanie O'Rourke. This series was mostly recorded online because of the pandemic. 
with some live recording by John Michael Kennedy. Sound production is by Eggbox Audio. The editor was Zoe Irvin and the assistant editor, Molly Fredrickson. Music composed, played, and recorded by Elizabeth Flett. With thanks to Colin McAndrew, Barry Stewart, Al McGowan, and the Royal Society of Edinburgh.